Another Piers Morgan uncensored, sealed by the royal hand. Now Prime Minister Truss shakes up the British government. But how will she pay for her big energy bailout? As crime hits a 20-year high, have police lost control of broken Britain? Fast trafficking victim or playing the victim? Should we show mercy to ISIS bride Shamima Begum and allow her back to the UK? Live from London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Well, good evening. Welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. My little rant last night about the state of broken Britain has had about 2 million views so far across various platforms, suggesting it hit a nerve with you, the viewers. And I'm not surprised, because we're all feeling, aren't we, that this country is careering out of control. And the person who's been charged with putting it back on the rails is Liz Truss. Well, nothing will be straightforward for the new Prime Minister. She's Britain's fourth PM in six years, and she steps directly into a cost-of-living crisis, an energy crisis, a health crisis, a crime crisis, a migrant crisis, even a sewage and sea crisis. It's a crisis of crises. And they say, don't they, that you need to be a lucky general. Well, she couldn't have started worse, really. First of all, it rained on her parade, quite literally, just rained and rained and rained after Boris this morning sailed off in bright sunshine. And then when she went up to Scotland, Liz Trust, to meet the Queen, have it all formalised, well, she got stuck in the air, wasn't able to land for quite a while. That's not a good start for any general, is it? A lot of rain and stuck in the air. I hope things improve for Liz Trust because, honestly, I want her to succeed. Anyway, the Queen ratified this uh, from Balmoral. Uh, Liz Truss is the new Prime Minister, and tonight she's got this burgeoning in-tray of problems to deal with. Well, uh, she addressed the nation. I was going to bring you the best bits of it, but actually we were going through it a little earlier and we decided there weren't many. In fact, this was probably the most memorable thing she said. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm sure she's very grateful for the job. Um, I'll be grateful if she keeps her promise and fixes the problems that we have. The speech was light on detail. In fact, there wasn't a detail in the speech, and that is worrying, I think. But Trust did say she'll unveil help on the rocketing cost of energy later this week. Reports suggesting she's preparing a bailout of up to £100 billion to keep families and businesses afloat. Bills could be capped reportedly at £2,500. But how she's going to pay for this remains unclear, particularly given her commitment to actually cut taxes. And who she's going to rely on to help navigate the storm, well, it's becoming a little clearer tonight. Her first cabinet appointments include her close friend and ally, Theresa Coffey, as health secretary and deputy prime minister. Suella Braverman is the new home uh, secretary. James Cleverley becomes foreign secretary. Kwasi Kwarteng will be the chancellor. And basically, everybody who didn't suck up to Liz Truss has been shoved out the door, which is what tends to happen in these things. Let's get into all this with my uh, gloriously exotic peers back tonight. I'm joined by Talk TV presenter Richard Tice, political commentator Grace Blakely, best-selling author Douglas Murray, New York Post columnist Maureen Callan, and Talk TV political editor Kate McCann. Well, welcome to all of you. Kate, let me start with you. Uh, a busy, busy, busy night going on down there in Westminster. Not really that surprising. Everybody who didn't support Liz Truss fired unceremoniously and all the suck-ups get all the top jobs. 
<laughs> well, that's certainly one way of putting it. And it is what we are starting to see in those early big appointments. Those people who've been closest to Liz Truss throughout this campaign, Therese Coffey, as you said, top job, Deputy Prime Minister and Health Secretary, a really significant part of the three-point plan that Liz Truss announced today in Downing Street. And others too, Kwasi Kwarteng. Now, he is going to have one of the most difficult jobs in government. I think of well, any of the last couple of governments, because he's going to have to tackle the energy crisis. He's going to potentially have to announce, as you said there, a 100 billion plus plan to solve the energy bill problem that Liz Truss is now faced with. And that, it sounds like, could go on borrowing, just essentially topping up what is already a significant debt pile that the UK government is sitting on. Now, some in Liz Truss's inner circle are not particularly worried about that. They think that the UK economy can grow and that ultimately things will be fine. But there are others who are a little bit more worried and concerned still that it might not be enough and ultimately Liz Truss may have to go further if, as we expect, this plan will potentially run out sometime around Christmas next year. So an unenviable task, but as you say, so far a cabinet stuffed with loyalists. Perhaps not surprising, but there will be those in Westminster and some of them were wandering the corridors with their phones just held out in front of them, just, you know, looking for a bit of phone signal, who want to be in those top jobs, who will be missing out because they didn't back the right candidate. It'll be fascinating to see what happens to Penny Morden. She's been tweeting very supportively of Liz Truss in the last couple of hours. Maybe she might be in line for a top job too. Oh, they'll all be, they'll all be greasing away, won't they, on social media. Oh, she's wonderful, wonderful. Please give me a job. Um, <laughs> my problem is I couldn't get past Theresa Coffey as Deputy Prime Minister and Health Secretary. But apart from the else, she's not exactly a picture of health, is she? I mean, I don't mean to be personal, but she's a, she's a big smoker. She's clearly overweight. Is she the right person to be lecturing us all on public health? Well, look, I think Therese Coffey has handled one of the most difficult briefs in government, the DWP, Department for Work and Pensions. And what she's done is quietly navigate her way through some pretty big challenges and got what she wanted. You may not know Therese Coffey. People may not recognise that name and immediately know what she looks like. But she has made a difference in a department which usually is regarded as impossible to run. She fought okay, with Shisunak you know okay, over the, the 20 pound universal credit uplift. I know, look, I, I, I'm sure you're right, but I've interviewed her several times and I thought she was shockingly mediocre. The only thing I remember her for, actually, where I thought she had a tick in the credit box was her performance at a karaoke. Let's take a look at this. is our new Deputy Prime Minister. Great to move on, I think, from Partygate to that. Well, look, I'm sure, Piers Morgan, that you wouldn't get angry with people for having a little bit of fun. But, I mean, look, there are questions about Liz Truss's cabinet. They are largely, though, questions of experience. People saying, well, you've put some people in top jobs who haven't necessarily held them before. I think Therese Coffey has proved that she has the metal. She may not be what you expect in terms of a minister in a top position in government, but she's certainly made her way in a difficult department, as I said, and she's been so close to Liz Truss in this campaign. She's one of her key allies. She will also be, as I said, Deputy Prime Minister, and that's a job that requires someone with an even temperament, somebody who isn't going to rock the boat, and crucially, somebody who isn't in it for themselves. Liz Truss is surrounding herself with people who she trusts, who she doesn't think are going to come for her when her back is turned. And after the last couple of years in Downing Street, seeing what's happened to Conservative Prime Ministers 
I mean, I think that's probably something she's going okay. to value above everything else. All right, uh, Kate McCann, what are nine eights? What are nine eights? Nine times eight. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> don't hit me with maths questions. Masters, I am so bad at Fantastic. maths. Fantastic. You don't actually know what... Thing. There's a reason I'm asking you. I'll, I'll take you off the hook because actually I did ask our new <laughs> Prime Minister that very question on Good Morning Britain. <laughs> and watch, watch the terrified face, a bit like yours, and the pause that happened. Watch this. Like mine. Yeah, Just watch what's, this. Uh, nine times eight. Uh, nine times eight is 72. But I'm not going to answer any more of these questions, Piers. I knew you were going to ask me that. You know what? And I think you, one of the problems got, we've got, got there is eventually. that people get put on the spot. She was literally on that day to talk about maths, <laughs> right? I didn't think it was... <laughs> so I'm not going to ask, answer any more of your questions, Piers, about the thing I've come on to talk about. Anyway, it's quite clear, uh, Mr McCann, that you know as little about maths as the Prime Minister, which is... A little unsettling to discover, because I thought you knew everything. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Kate, it's going to be a lot going on. You better get back to your <laughs> workstation. If we, get, if we get any more dramatic developments, uh, <laughs> let us know. Otherwise, we'll see you again tomorrow. Take care. <laughs> We're not going to do karaoke, but I wouldn't mind doing karaoke, actually. Uh, let's come to our, our peers pack. Uh, Grace Blakely, I haven't seen you for a while. Hey, nice well, to be back. Welcome back. Nice of you to stop gallivanting around the world. <laughs> um, what do you make of all this? Well, I mean, you know, I think what we've just heard, that uh, Truss has appointed a lot of key allies to um, senior positions uh, out of basically fear that she's going to be stabbed in the back, tells you a lot of what you need to know about this government, which is that she's come in from a relatively weak position. She doesn't have the support of a lot of her MPs. She doesn't have as strong support among the Conservative Party membership as we might have thought, certainly at the beginning of the, of the campaign. The campaign obviously had its own fair share of fiascos and U-turns um, and didn't leave her le looking particularly prime ministerial and now she's going into this massive crisis you know and she has to basically try and unite two wings of the conservative party one of which is kind of boris's populist um but you know what okay. more relaxed spending I mean, look, and then the the right, right. wing free market neoliberals but here's basically. the problem richard side i don't care about the infighting of the bloody conservative Correct. party i want them to focus on the people of this country. It all revolves around... That's my around, problem. I'm fed up look, with all this infighting. And, and to be honest, Piers, it all revolves around the energy plan. I produced a, a, an emergency energy plan three weeks ago. I know it's being looked at in the heart of government. If she gets that right this week, she will get a big, big boost. She will unite millions of households up and down the country. How can she do it and, ta and cut taxes? Very simply, you put the, you put the onus on the, uh, the gas producers, the energy generators... Mm not on us, the taxpayer, and the borrower. Because otherwise, you're literally borrowing from us, taxpayer, to give it to the oil producers. I said you've got to revert to the average 2021 price for the wholesale price, and you've got to say to all the generators in the UK, that's what you're doing, that's the price you get when you sell to the UK. Shockingly, I do not disagree with Richard oh on God. this, actually. And I know, this is crazy. Isn't it wonderful? No, it is, it's, it's, it's brilliant, because it's very obvious. What we're seeing at the moment it looks like the beginning of a plan from Liz Truss, which is an energy price cap, but it's not an energy price cap, because a cap implies that you are, um, you know, capping the price at which producers can sell, and that involves them taking a hit, potentially with a small subsidy from the state. What she's really doing is saying, you guys keep all the profits, yep. you carry on making all the extraordinary profits you're making, and we will... Um, basically pay you the difference between what consumers are paying at this cap level. So it's corporate welfare, basically. But the point is, 
This isn't for six months, Piers. We're in a global energy war that could last three, five, seven years. So you have to have a plan that responds to that. Well, the problem that Liz Truss has got is that none of the plans she has for making Britain less energy dependent on other countries are going to kick in before an election. Exactly. She's got a ticking clock to that election. I want to bring in Douglas Murray uh, across the pond there in New York. Douglas, looking from afar, what, what do you make of this? Liz Truss, I don't think I can ever remember any leader short of uh, after World War II inheriting a worse situation than this. Do you have any confidence that Liz Truss is the woman to guide us to, to uh, quieter waters, to calmer waters? Uh, not very much. I wish her well, as I think everybody should. Uh, the only person I can think of who came into a worse position was Theresa May after her very bad call in the 2017 uh, general election. Uh, um, the problem that Liz Truss is getting into is this, as, as, as your other guests have just said, um, it's unlikely, whatever she does, that the benefits uh, of her governance are going to be felt fast. Uh, everything to do with the energy crisis, everything to do with the cost of living crisis, she's got basically two years uh, uh, to solve these things. And it seems very unlikely she could do it in that time. And here's, here's the bigger problem, Piers, as you well know. We're now 12 years in to conservative governance right. in the UK. 12 years. And to a great extent, this feels to me like the major years, when you have that third press of the conservative talent and you had all of these crises and the feeling that they couldn't get on top of it. I, of course, hope, like everybody else at Liz Truss can. But the problem she has is that, you know, the question will keep being asked, particularly by the Labour opposition, well, who's been running the joint for the last 12 years? OK, for five years, the Conservative Party had Nick Clegg manacled to their leg, a very unpleasant situation for anyone <laughs> to be in. But after those five years, we have had seven years of Conservative um, yeah. majority rule. Yeah. And, you know, all of, these, all of these questions that are coming up are questions that could have been answered before. And you all, and I think we are gonna, we're going to start hearing the same excuses from Conservative ministers as we've heard in recent years. They'll tell us that the blob is the problem, that the civil service is the problem, that the unions are the problem, and all sorts of other things. And they may be right on that, but the question will keep coming up, well, who's been in charge? Well, I agree. I mean, let years. me bring uh, Grace back in on that because the other problem they've got, Liz Truss has got, she's got the spectre of Boris Johnson who'd be lurking like this ugly shadow in the background, ready to pounce. You know, he did a typical Boris job this morning. I was watching it live. He comes out, doesn't apologise for anything, no regrets, all very buffoonery. These are all my greatest hits. It's all been a tremendous success and see you later. And then the sun came out and kind of shone on this guy as he sauntered out of Downing Street compared to poor old Truss who got poured on. And, you know, he's a, he's a lucky general, Boris, in many ways, isn't he? He then quoted uh, some Roman emperor who famously went back to a farm and ploughed the fields. But what he didn't mention was that emperor, he then came back from, from the field. <laughs> he left his plough and came back to save the country. Yeah. He sounds like Trump when he speaks like this. Oh, no, of course. I mean, you know, why do you think he did this ridiculous farewell tour? Uh, going around saying, look at all the wonderful things I've done, look at how green I've made Britain, despite the fact that if we had actually gone green, we wouldn't mm. be dealing with the scale
scale of this energy crisis that we're dealing with right now. Um, he's obviously planning on coming back. You know, he's going to go away, go on the speaking circuit make for a few years, make huge make amounts of money. The book will make, make millions. Make huge amounts of money while people in this country are literally st struggling to heat their homes. Come back when he's dealt with all of his offspring and given them as much I mean, Richard, money as, we are, as we they are in need. an era, aren't we, where shamelessness with politicians can be very successful. Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, they yeah. have no shame. Just focus on the track record. 12 years, as Douglas said, of Tory leadership, Tory government has left, as you said, a crisis of crises. Yeah. There are so many, you can't name them all, you forget them. I mean, this is incompetence, it's negligence, mm. and it's the British people, the lowest paid, the least well off, yes. who are going to suffer the most. Yes, and is. that's what I really, and really resent. It is actually the legacy of a failed macroeconomic agenda that Liz Truss is saying that she's basically going to revive. She's saying, I'm the next that. And which, by the way, right. her fingerprints have been all over as a member of successive oh, governments. Totally. She's been there 10 years. Yeah. Right? So she's not, she's not squeaky clean coming in here like, nothing to do with me, no, Gov. No. It was you, Gov, right? I mean, you know, what's she going to do? She, tax cuts, right? OK, we've already got high levels of inequality. Thatcher did we tax cuts. We can't afford... Ta well, no, 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 but no, but it's a big myth. It's no. a big myth. I keep mentioning this. Margaret Thatcher, when she came in and inherited a very hard situation, bad economy, she didn't cut taxes. She put them she up. She waited a few it, years. Well, she put them up to tax, start yeah, with. But, but the the then the economy tax, settled down, then the she cut The rate of income tax but, was 80% when Thatcher came clear. to power, you and then she steadily reduced it. You can't tax your way out of a crisis. You've got to grow your way out of a crisis. Yeah. After the Second World War, our national debt fell from 150% uh, down to about 50% yeah. very, very quickly because of growth. And she's right on that. But so tax she's got cuts don't deliver growth. They do. If tax cuts delivered growth, then we would have had astonishingly levels of growth. Over cut the taxes course hard. of the coalition government when yeah, but, but they, they introduced cut, they the corporate tax We've They got cut corporation tax. For 70 years. We were, we were in a race to the bottom on corporation tax, and that's well, supposed, to, that's well, supposed to be what delivers actually, investment. Actually, as leaders from Thatcher to Reagan and others have proven, when the economy is doing well and is stable and you cut taxes, you can get the growth. But how I do you get the economy well do, and doing stable? Well, you need low a, levels of inequality. You need investment. I don't think you can massively increase borrowing by 100 billion and cut taxes and expect to grow. Well, the mean, government's balance sheet is absolutely fine as long as you cut taxes, you mm. cut unnecessary regulation and you go for growth. What you don't do is borrow to subsidise, to give 100 billion quid to a bunch of already very rich investors in oil producers. Okay, well, look, talking of, of bunging millions and millions of pounds to very rich people, we're going to come back and talk about me, 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 Meghan and hapless half-wit Harry, uh, because Maureen Callaghan, one of our other guests on the pack today uh, in New York, wrote one of the most excoriating pieces I've ever read in my life about anybody about these two. I want to talk to her about that after the break and also about this extraordinary case of a teacher in Ireland who's been imprisoned, imprisoned, because he refused to use the right gender about a transgender student. We'll explain all that after the break. Stay with us. Well, blink and you'd have missed them, and frankly, I wish I had blinked. Halfway, Harry and Meghan debacle touched down in Germany today after a whistle-top door of the UK, which they didn't find time to meet any of their family, who all hate them because they hate them. And they did meet a lot of strangers, of course, and Meghan was supposed to be lecturing young people about equality, which is her favourite subject from her California mansion. Uh, but instead, she stuck to her specialist subject, the one she currently really loves, which is talking about herself. I'm so grateful to be in your company today. I was first invited to be a counselor at One Young World. I was probably a lot like each of you. How am I here? And there I was. I was the girl from Suits. And I was surrounded by 
world leaders. I was so overwhelmed by this experience. I think I even saved my little paper place card. Proof that I was there. I belonged. I was so nervous. Oh, I doubted myself and I wondered, I wondered if I was good enough to even be there. What I was doing in the world, albeit important and meaningful as far as I saw it, was it deserving? One young world saw in me just as I see in you. My life had changed rather significantly, and I was now a mom. And I would ask, what is this world he would come to adopt? And what can we do, what can I do to make it better? I don't know. What could you do to make it better? You're just so special. Uh, and how did you get to sit at the top table with all the world leaders, Megan? Oh, could it be because he married a British prince and then dragged him out of his country? Off to your California mansion to fleece your royal titles. Anyway, 54 times you mentioned herself in a seven-minute speech. Even I haven't done that in a speech. <laughs> that gives you some idea of the scale of the Netflix narcissist. Um, my question really is, how can they be allowed to do this? To run around like a rival royal family, including in this country? A country they've been trashing, with a monarchy they've been trashing, with a royal family they've been trashing. Why do we let this happen? I want to go to New York Post columnist Maureen Kelly. We're waiting very patiently. Maureen, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Uh, you wrote a absolute... Thank you for having me. You, well, you wrote one of the all-time great tub-thumping, excoriating pieces uh, about this last week, which you I, I read on holiday. Kind. I thought even I couldn't have written one quite as savage. Um, so congratulations. But uh, tell me, what is... Because I mean, there's oh, been this kind you. of mythology that in America they all love Meghan Markle and are proud of her for coming over here and stealing Harry and so on. What is the reality? This is a common misconception that uh, the Brits have. I understand why, and I can promise you it, nothing could be further from the truth. Even, you know, that, that, that profile uh, that I that columned on ran in New York Magazine, and it attracted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments immediately. Now, that is a self-selecting group of woke, leftist, self-identified social justice warriors, and they were piling on Megan as a liar, as an insufferable narcissist, as completely inauthentic, as who does she think she is? She married into this family. All she does is trash them. She's a hypocrite. She's trying to monetize her own children off the backs of the royal family, the, the ailing queen. So um, that piece, you know, it's, it's not the first time I've written about Megan. It certainly won't be the last, but that piece really hit a nerve. I mean, the problem, Maureen, is as a country, the United States has now sent two women to our royal family. Wallace Simpson and Meghan Markle. The first one led to an abdication. We didn't and the second her, one Piers. might be into the end of the monarchy. <laughs> you guys took her. We need better quality American women. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you need I think you need to sharpen your BS detector a bit because um, she she apparently the royals themselves caught on pretty quickly that she was not everything she appeared to be. Well, I caught on pretty quickly. Unfortunately, I then got removed from the job that I had at the time for disbelieving her nonsense to Oprah Winfrey. What's quite interesting is the more she talks, the more people realise she is fork-tongued. Uh, Grace Bakley, can you defend this woke warrior? Is she the epitome of equality? Is she, is she the standard-bearer? You know how I feel about this. I just, I just don't care. Like, you know, I find it when people like Meghan Markle are held up as, as you say, the standard-bearers of feminism mm. and, you know, social justice 
ridiculous because she is obviously so far removed from the concerns and troubles of the vast majority of women and this idea that we have now among you know certain parts of the liberal by the way not left or socialist right. liberal right. elements right. of uh of politics is that you know we need you know rich women to like lean in and give inspirational speeches and kind of show everyone else how to be but ultimately it's just the same part of this like weird cult of celebrity that distracts people from the real issues that are affecting their lives and i, yeah, I, couldn't I mean i'm more. a republican i don't care no, okay, i couldn't agree more richard <laughs> i thought she'd left the united kingdom right for privacy and to get away from the royal family so she didn't have to go to those sort of charity yeah. events that she went to last night but now she's back talking about herself and you're thinking, well, hang on, so are you staging a comeback? As you say, is it a rival sort of royal gig? What is going on? And what is on? going on? Honestly, what's going on with Harry here? I was told on good authority yesterday that, that Charles in particular is unbelievably hurt by what is going on with his son and daughter-in-law. He doesn't understand what he's done wrong. He, remember, he walked her down, down the aisle. Douglas, let me bring you back in here on this. Um, you know, there, there's lots of plays going on here, aren't they, with the Sussexes? But the one I can't get away from, they keep trashing the very institution that gave them these titles that make them their millions. There is the ultimate hypocrisy right there, and it's a running sore. Well, well the royal family is clearly just a, um, a leg up for Meghan Markle, who believes that her position as a duchess now allows her to inspire us common folk with her amazing wisdom. Unfortunately, as we just saw again from that speech, her wisdom is from the school of Hallmark Cardsism. Uh, it's all um, uh, sort of suburbama, pseudo-inspiring stuff about how you can be the person you meant to be for the being that you could be and everyone else can be like you. Oh, it's all total be. flannel, isn't it? It's, it's total it's flannel. Total, it's total flannel. None of it ever makes any sense. I say you mostly see this sort of thing in Hallmark Cards mm. philosophy. Uh, it, it, it's all about you being your true self and all of this sort of thing. It, it, it's, it's, it, I don't think that... I mean, I've never heard somebody with more of a tin ear than Meghan Markle. Most people know the reason she's on the platform is because she married a prince. Of course. Well, that's it. Of Otherwise, course. she'd and, still and by be the way, in I season think... 24 of Suits, perhaps, exactly, as a exactly. minor role. Still. And when she sits, she goes, little old me from Suits, and look at me now with all the world leaders. Why do you think you got there? Honestly, Princess Pinocchio, I think the Queen should strip the titles. I think we're just done with it. Or we should just get rid of all the titles and get rid of the monarchy. But, but and that would be because it's yeah, the greatest yeah, assets. It's yeah, one of the greatest assets. The royal family is mired in scandal and Meghan Markle is, you know, by far the least of their problems at the moment, I think, as we all know. Well, I certainly wouldn't equate what they've done with what Andrew did. So I, I agree with you about that. But the damage to the monarchy is what worries me. Correct. Because the Queen it's... is in very ill health. We know that. She's elderly. She's 96. She's not going to be here for a lot longer. We know this. What happens next is hugely important. The monarchy is one of the greatest foundation assets that yeah. this country has. We should be very proud of it. And, you know, this is catastrophic for the royal family. Yeah. And they've got to deal with it. They've got to, they've got to cauterise the wound, frankly. I uh, want to show... Um, talking of cauterising wounds, I want to show Maureen. Is Maureen... Can we get Maureen back for a moment? I don't know if you've seen this, Maureen, but the, uh, I've just written a column for the New York Post, uh, both you, me and Douglas, all right for the Post. Um, I've just uh, written about Kim Kardashian's derriere which has now been uh, appearing on the front cover of Interview magazine uh, under the American dream issue of Interview. We have to have this, apparently, as the emblem of the American dream. Kim Kardashian's gigantic naked backside 
bearing off the magazine stands. As an American, do you see this image as the personification of the American dream? Oh. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a specific kind of American dream. I think it's a kind of American dream that, you know, does share something in common with Meghan Markle. When you are devoid of really any talent or intellectual contribution to make, what do you do? You auto-generate your content. What is Kim Kardashian's content? It's her ever-evolving, uncanny valley kind of physicality. This isn't even new. She did this before. Uh, she was on the cover of Paper Magazine and her, her bum was, you know, out there and uh, greased up and it was shocking at the time. And I think that what is probably going to be shocking to Kim Kardashian is that these kinds of images no longer, they fail to shock any longer. Exactly. You know? The only shocking thing um, is she, she kept some of, clothes yeah. on. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Uh, exactly. I want to just mention, I want to just mention uh, another story before we finish with the pack. This extraordinary story of a school teacher in Ireland who's been imprisoned after refusing to use the pronouns requested by a trans student. Enoch Burke was initially suspended by Wilson's Hospital School in Dublin, saying the request was a violation of his Christian beliefs. He was then issued with an injunction and told not to attend the school after a public round with the head teacher. But he continued to show up. He's now been thrown in prison for contempt of court. Burke will now remain in prison until he, quote, purges his contempt, effectively apologises, or is freed by the court. Douglas Murray, we've talked a lot about free speech on this show, you and I. At the heart of this, I don't even agree with half the things this teacher seems to believe or, or think. But I, I respect his religious beliefs. It's a religious school, by the way. What I can't get my head round is that somebody who refuses to call a singular human being, by the way, they, which I have always found preposterous when there's one person, because uh, he wouldn't use the right pronoun, he's now in prison albeit for yeah. contempt, but the contempt was because he refused to back down on not being required to use this pronoun. What do you make of that? Yeah, of, of course, it's ludicrous. Some people might have missed something very interesting that's happened in Ireland in the last couple of decades. After the church scandals of recent years, Ireland has effectively de-Christianized faster than any country I've ever seen. Uh, but, you know, you strip one uh, religion out of a country, and it doesn't mean the country loses all sense of religion. Ireland also, perhaps faster than any European country I know, has gone straight for the religion of social justice warriorism. It's extraordinary to see it, uh, the way in which it's vehemently advocated by politicians of almost every stripe, including former terrorists. Uh, and they all jump into this. They all jump into the pronouns business. Uh, Sinn Féin pretend that the armed struggle and indeed uh, Bobby Sands died for gay rights. I think Bobby Sands would have been a bit annoyed if you'd told him he was doing this for the gays. But anyway, um, they, they've rewritten their own history. They've got this massive religion of social justiceism there and, and they're militant about it. They're quite as militant as they were in the past about Catholicism. Yeah, but the... Um, OK, and, but the... And men bring, like this are the, are the victims. Yeah, me bringing Grace. I mean, the, just... Whatever the debate about transgender, and I don't, you know, I, I have no problem showing full respect for transgender people who have full rights to equality and fairness. This whole thing with pronouns, the idea of a teacher actually ending up in prison because ultimately because he wouldn't say to a transgender student, you'll call they. Well, that's not why, was it? He ended well, he was, because he's in contempt of court, and he, that's something for the court to decide. Because he refused to... He refused a to, liberal but, institution. But like he refused to back down on the Look, principle of using a pronoun. Who 
cares? If the kid the school cares, or he wouldn't be in prison. Call him they. You know, the idea that Ireland's been like taken captive by social justice warriors and this entire conversation is all about right, the guys in prison. It's absolutely ridiculous. Ireland is suffering He's with in... crises, like the, a housing crisis that is one of the Grace, worst. A teacher in the is entire in a teacher is in prison. Grace, He's entitled to a religious belief. It's an employment matter. It's not a criminal matter where no. the bloke ends up. In jail, it's not. That's, it's, again, it's a, it's for a, the court to decide. Well, it's a, like it's, you know, if the, he wants to, if the, the student wants to be called day, why should call he? What? Who no. cares? Okay. Deal with Ireland's housing all right, you've crisis. Got a, all right. Deal with the water crisis. Deal with the wages yeah. okay. crisis. Don't waste Ireland's time putting people in prison for not being a prisoner. All right, Grace. Ever since the financial crisis, you've got to call me hot. That's my pronoun. If you, like A, Go on. Every like time definitely he's... not a protected characteristic. Sorry, sorry. If it appears, if you want me My to call you hot, is hot every time I come on the show, and you say, Grace, I'm going to let you talk about whatever you want. I'm going to let you talk about the economy. You're going to call I'm me gonna hot. I'm going to let you not talk about Meghan Markle or pronouns. I'm going to let you talk about you'll call economics me hot. and climate change. I'll call you whatever you want. Right. Me. If you don't call me hot, you're going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's the way this works. If it's okay I mean, with you, I'm not going to call you hot. As Absolutely. a militant social justice warrior, it's probably where I belong anyway, isn't it? My pronouns. Pronouns on my Twitter profile are actually hot, hotter, hottest. So just for the record, uh, I'm actually not joking. They are my preferred pronouns. Um, Grace, thank you. Good to see you. Richard, thank you. Douglas Maureen in New York, thank you both very much. Probably one of the finest peers pack we've had so far. So thank you for that transatlantic orgy of intellectual <laughs> intelligence. Much appreciated. Coming up next, rising crime, violence on the streets, pensioners being murdered, young girls being shot dead in their homes. Have the police lost control of broken Britain? Former Scotland Yard detective Peter Blexley and pastor Lorraine Jones, who lost her son to gang violence, will be here live. They don't agree, by the way. While our understaffed, overworked police forces across the UK are bracing themselves for a winter of surging crime, and civil unrest, a leaked national strategy paper drawn up this summer, shows that police chiefs are worried about a breakdown in public order and even corruption within their ranks due to the spiralling cost of living crisis. But with crime levels in England and Wales at a 20-year high and less than 6% of crimes reported leading to charges, the big question is, have the police lost control of our streets? Well, joining me now are former Scotland Yard detective Peter Blexley and Pastor Lorraine Jones, who acts as a liaison between police and families after our own son, Dwayne was stamped to death. Welcome to both of you. Thank um, you. Lorraine, great to see you. Um, every day we seem to wake up now to some new horror. Young kids stabbing each other to death. A little girl, aged nine in Liverpool, shot dead in her home as part of some gang uh, thing going on. You have a, a pensioner in a mobility scooter killed. Yeah, a, a person very near me in, in Kensington, a sort of leafy Kensington, shot dead, young person in her 20s, uh, only two days ago. What is going on here? And do you feel, from all your connections with the police and community, are the police losing control of what is happening on the streets? Piers, I've been crying out that we're in a state of emergency and I really hope our new Prime Minister hears with her heart. The evidence is there. Have they lost control? The evidence is there. What's going on? Poor Olivia. She was only nine mm. years old in the safety of her mother in her home, shot dead in the chest. We've had countless incidents. If not fatal, there is a lot of violence and crime on our streets. It's a state of emergency. What is the answer? What is the answer? Yes. There needs to be a shift in leadership. 
and our prime minister can do that, things have spiraled down and down. And we've given the answers, the deprivation, the social economics that has gone plummeted down. Poor investment in the local community, our young people, so the housing, there's so many streams of have problems. We, have we, though, Laurent, have we gone too soft in the way we deal with young offenders? And one of the things is stop and search. Should that be brought back aggressively now by the police? Should we have more police doing more stopping and searching? Find the kids with the knives on the street. That's the problem, Piers. The government is relying on the police to do stop and search. Stop and search has been going on for decades before my son was killed. It's, it's going to take more intervention than stop and search. What we have to remember is the police respond to the problems. We need to prevent these things from happening, and that's not going to happen until we deal with the root causes of what communities okay. are facing. Peter, Everyone I know who's had any experience of crime recently in this country says the police don't bother responding fast enough, if at all. Petty theft and burglaries and so on just get completely ignored. We're seeing constant increases in violent crime. And we're seeing a lot of sort of woke police stories popping up in the papers of them dancing at carnivals and so on, which creates an impression to the public that while all this mayhem's going on, they're not taking it seriously enough. What's your view? Indeed, it does. The police service of late has come up with an expression that says, we're the service that can't say no. In other words, when there's an emergency of whatever description it may be, mental health or connected to social care, for example, the police go and deal with that. Well, actually, the time has come now for the police service to stand up and say to government, no. Give me three things Liz Trust should do. Uh, take away from the police... This, this dreadful amount of mental health work that they're having to get involved with. Same with social care work. They're not mental health workers, they're not social workers. Carry on with the recruitment programme and entice experienced officers to come back either in a full-time role or a supervisory role so that all these new officers can benefit from good experience. What is morale like amongst the police? Rock bottom in many mm. regards. Officers, as many as they're getting newbies through the front door, experienced guys and girls are going out of the back door because they've quite simply had enough, not only because of the workload, because of pay and pension conditions being butchered. Um, so, yes, morale is, is, is dreadful. It needs to be attended to. And quite frankly, those who are in charge, the desk driving officers that have got their degrees in the last 25, 30 years, who have letters after their name as well as in front of them, oh. really need to focus on serving the public. Community engagement is not dancing, it's not prancing, it's not face painting and it's not a coloured helmet. It is serving the communities that have become victims of crime. Attend every crime, speak to every victim. Yep. That's when public trust and confidence... You know what's interesting to soar. me is I can see you nodding. There's a lot of agreement here. There's not enough being done. We need to do more. I hope your voices get heard. I hope Liz Truss is listening to this conversation because she needs to act and is getting out of control. Thank you both very much indeed. I appreciate it. Thank you, Piers. Well, next tonight, victim of political porn, ISIS bride Shamima Begum has been branded bitter and twisted by a British journalist who got closer to her than anybody else. He joins me next, plus somebody who thinks we should show mercy and let her come back to Britain. What do you think of that? We'll discuss after the break.
Well, Shamima Begum is notorious as the ISIS bride banned from returning to Britain. Begum was just 15 when she and two other East London schoolgirls travelled to Syria to join the terrorists in 2015. Her attempts to come home have sparked a global furore. To some, she's a victim, a child exploited by terrorists. To others, she's a terrorist herself and a threat to national security. The UK stripped her of citizenship in 2019, arguing her Bangladeshi heritage means she's not stateless. In practice, neither country will let her in. And Begum, now aged 23, is stuck in a Syrian detention camp where most British people think she should stay. But this week, another twist. She may be smuggled into Syria by Canadian spy. With Canada now pledging to investigate, is it time to give Begum another hearing, perhaps even mercy? Well, joining me now is filmmaker and journalist Andrew Drury. He's met and interviewed Shamima Begum on numerous occasions. I think she's playing the victim. And Mozin Beg, an author and former Guantanamo Bay detainee, who thinks we should let her back into the country. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Andrew Drury, let me ask you, you've, you've met her a number of times, yeah. including just five weeks ago, I think you had contact with yeah. her. So you've got to know her pretty well. I have, yeah. What is your belief about the kind of person we're talking about and the kind of potential threat she may present to this country if she did come back? She's a manipulator. When I first met her, I was filming a documentary and did on a day off. And at that point, she was playing sorry, I'm sorry to Britain. Um, to my last meeting, she started to become a victim. She believes that she was trafficked. She wasn't trafficked. She says she was, but she's told me a whole story. So she's now playing this part as a victim. Um, funny enough, you've got a guy from, who was in Guantanamo Bay. Mm. She asked me if I could bring a book out there for her, um, Gu Guantanamo Bay Diaries, um, about somebody who was there in their 14 years without trial, because that's how she's seeing herself now, a victim. Right. She's no victim. Mozin Beg, here's my problem with this whole case with Shamima Beg. I've followed it for a number of years. I just can't get past the fact that she spent years there fathering... Uh, uh, mothering a number of kids by a jihadi father who was fighting with ISIS. Uh, you know, she knew what they were doing. She saw what they were doing. And she just stayed and was, in my view, a willing accomplice to this whole ISIS phenomenon over there. Why should we show her any mercy? Why should we have any pity for someone who was so merciless and pitiless herself? Well, Pierce, I don't think it's a question of mercy at all. I think really it's a question of the law and a question of the application of it across the board. So, for example, there are several people who were part of ISIS who've returned to the UK. Some are in prison, some are out, some are on uh, terrorism prevention and uh, investigative me measures, i.e. Uh, akin to house arrest. So there's different, there's different ways uh, that, that Britain knows how to and can and has dealt with this. Uh, the real issue is, is Shamima being targeted because her, her nationality was revoked? Was it a political statement or was it one that was based on law? And I think it's uh, the former and not the latter. Uh, the role of the intelligence services in all of this also cannot be underplayed. And if, if you'll allow me, I, I think you, you may remember, you came to Belmarsh in 2014 mm. uh, to visit Andy Coulson. I yeah. was in Belmarsh at the time and I was being prosecuted for sending a generator to Syria. Now, my case fell apart. Uh, the police de de declared me innocent and I was found not guilty. But I was held with an individual who um, told me a fascinating story. He was a young man from London who said that he'd been recruited by MI5 to go and spy for them against ISIS. Um, and they'd given him huge amounts of money to do so. Uh, MI5 and, and the police eventually thought that he's, a, he's playing a, a double game, he's a, he's a double agent, so they arrested him and tried to prosecute him for terrorism. And 
His case was the first case in British legal history to have been almost entirely heard in secret because of the role of MI5 in his case. It was, it was, it was completely bizarre. OK, but look, he was I want to, I want to, if I can, I want to focus more on Shamima Begum. Not guilty of the main charges. Well, what is the relevance to Shamima Begum? Because it seems to me, in her, to, in her case, so, so the relevance we, the, we all know what she did. We all know what the, she saw. We know, in my view, she made the, her the ISIS bribe bed that, is that and his, she should lie in it. So the relevance to this case, Pierce, is this, is that he was then taken, put on a deportation order in the UK and his nationality was revoked in the UK and then he was deported so that... Uh, the details of his case would never become come to, to light. Right. So in the same way in Shamima, Shamima Begum's case, um, the role of the intelligence service, it's, it's impossible that the security services, that the police didn't know that an, MI, that a, 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 an agent for CSIS, the Canadian uh, intelligence services, was facilitating the travel of her and other British individuals well, if, if that to is, Syria. If, look, if, uh, and, if that is what's happened, I mean, I, there are so many unanswered questions here. What is, what is not unanswered, Andrew Drury, is, is we know that she willingly was there with was. these ISIS killers as they were committing utter atrocities. Yeah. And I, again, I keep coming back in my head, I was like, I don't know why we should let her back she, in this country. Firstly, going on to the agent side of it, she wasn't aware. She told me how she got there. She wasn't aware of any agent. She had some couple of Syrians... Um, guided her over into Turkey. She says a, a girl called Sharmina was the girl mm. that um, arranged it. She wasn't... Um, see, she, it, it took her only six months. She made her own decision. She, she wasn't watching videos or mm. she wasn't had some preacher told her. Or she, you know, this was her choice. She decided to Do you think she's still dangerous? Yeah, she wants to be a somebody. Like, now she sees herself as a celebrity. She enjoys all... You know, all this that she's getting from us, the press, the media, mm. even she'll be watching this tonight. She'll hear, you know, this interview will go out. She loves what she wanted. She would have gone anyway. She wanted to be somebody. Being part of ISIS, she thought she was somebody. Now she's in the camp. She likes being somebody again. She's not, she's not a victim. I don't, I don't I, think she has any right to come back to this country. I, no, no moral right. I, I don't think she has a legal right. And I think that most British public agree with me about this. Uh, got to leave it there. Andrew Jury, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Mersin Beg, thank you as always for your insightful contribution. I appreciate it. Uh, that's it from me. Whatever you're up to, keep it uncensored. Good night.